I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Reppin. Today, we've got an amazing stage actor who said that his mixed ethnicity left him feeling like he didn't know where he belonged until he discovered theater and found himself by becoming others. He originated the role of Aladdin on Broadway. He played Marius in the national tour of Les Miserables. And he was Simba in The Lion King. And honestly, his credits keep going on and on. And he's hanging out with us here. We've got Adam Jacobs. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Now, you're a stage actor with an impressive list of credits. I know that you've been in almost every show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. You were the lead. You played Aladdin on Broadway. You were in Les Mis. Sim- you were Simba in Lion King. You've done a lot. And I think you're now out in Chicago, right? That's right. Yeah, I just moved out here uh, about a year and a half ago. How do you like it? You know, it's a it's a slower pace of, of living out here, but it's it's been really good transition so far. Oh, cool. Now, I know you were born and raised in California, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Half Moon Bay, California. And uh, you studied in NYU, correct? That's right. Yeah, I got my theater degree from Tisch School of the Arts. What's your background and heritage? You know, what was it like growing up for you? Because, you know, growing up in California and coming to New York to study... I would assume that you had more diversity around you, especially like a city like New York. Yes, that's true. Um, I came, although I came from San Francisco, which they say is sort of the only East Coast city on the West Coast, which is kind of true. I mean, there were a lot of Asian people, and I identify mostly as being Asian American. My parents are, my mom is Filipina. My dad is uh, Russian, Dutch, Polish, Jewish, 
but I was raised Catholic, but now I'm agnostic. So I'm kind of a mix. <laughs> I've always been, I guess, trying to figure out who I was growing up. I was struggling with identity early on. Who represented me? I don't. I don't know. I couldn't. Couldn't really say. I didn't really identify mostly with one group or the other. So it took me a long time to be comfortable with the many facets of who I am. I guess. So for you, what was what was one moment where you really felt a little bit out of place, perhaps because of your mixed background? Um, where I grew up in Sam, in Half Moon Bay, there were not a lot of people that looked like me. Everybody thought I was Latino. Growing up, people thought I spoke Spanish. <laughs> you know, and I would say, oh, sorry, I, no, I'm, I'm not Spanish. <laughs> or I would go up north to my high school at St. Ignatius, which was a private Jesuit high school. And there, were a, there was a large Asian community there, but they also didn't accept me right away because I was half. Got it. And I didn't speak Tagalog. I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't full Filipino, so that community was a little hesitant in letting me in there. So, whereas now I feel very much a part of that community, it, early on, I, I wasn't sure. And I would go visit my grandmother who lived in Salinas, and all, there's a huge Asian American community there. And, you know, we'd all go to the community center and, and eat tons of food, you know, all the Asians do. And, and it was... <laughs> I sort of felt a little bit out of place there because I wasn't fully, I had one foot in and one foot out sort of my whole life. Do you remember, you know, during those moments, what sort of helped you assimilate? I think even as right. adults, we're all still trying to fit in, right? Own the right clothes, sure. have the right car, <laughs> just about being human, trying to fit in and be a part of something. But yeah. as a kid, especially, that must have been difficult. So what sort of helped you navigate that i mean not being filipino enough right. or looking right. latin and you're not latin and like how did you sort of navigate that when you were a kid i found that i played soccer i joined sports teams i tried to be involved in in different types of things i took art classes i was doing piano which was very by myself locked in a room you know right. but then it was really the theater that kind of allowed me to express who i was and feel feel more comfortable in my own skin it's very ironic that i felt most comfortable putting on a character and becoming somebody else huh. right that's very and interesting i found that i felt free doing that and so it was interesting for me in that way was that sort of when you found your stride, when you found theater and you had to be somebody else, which was a really interesting way to put it, you know, to feel yeah. most comfortable in your own skin, to be somebody else is kind of crazy. Right. It's, it's ironic. That's just the way, the way it worked for me. What was it that you found comforting about that? You know, I guess because being who I was was confusing. And when you have a play and you have a, a musical, you have a script and you have the lines and you have a character that you can create and you can, um, you know, it's it, the story. You, you're able to tell the story and as, I'm a storyteller at heart yes. right? as an actor. That's what I love to do. Right. And so when you have a nice, a, a nicely written story already set out for you, it's easier. Yeah. It's, just, it's like doing math. It's like it, <laughs> it's one plus one equals two, right? right? Although you have obviously the creative aspects of creating the character and bringing, bringing your own self to it and doing your own thing with it. 
which makes it fun. But it was uh, it was a lot easier. That's so interesting. And it makes sense when you actually stop to think about it. When did you sort of grow into getting comfortable with who you were? Now, I'm not mixed race. I am 100% Chinese. My parents were immigrants, and I was born in one of the boroughs of New York City. I am, I think, in many ways, a child of two cultures, because I have one foot very much understanding the Asian culture, but I am also very much a New Yorker. I mean, my God, I'm a New Yorker. So I found that being difficult. And as a, as a teenager, I wasn't Chinese enough for the Chinese group. And it was a very small group and I wasn't American or white enough or Italian enough in my community. You completely understand that. So for you, when did you sort of hit that moment where you became much more comfortable, settled and sort of embraced it? And what was it that made, that helped? I, well, I think, I guess in my early years, it was really, all it takes sometimes is just one person to sort of val- give you the validation that you need. And for me, it was my high school drama teacher and en- slash English teacher. He um, cast me in, in all the musicals at school. And he really was the one who gave me the confidence to to pursue the arts and said, you know, you could do this for a career if you want to, you know, you have the talent to do it. And it was just sort of that little seed that grew, you know, inside of me that said, you have, you can use your talent to tell stories and, and to, um, and and it made me feel more, more confident in general. That's awesome. Before you found your mentor, the person who gave you a hand up, what was one difficult experience that you might have faced, and what did you learn from that? It's hard to point to any one major thing, but like how I mentioned before, you know, I was teased a lot, I guess, because I wasn't any one thing. You know, I, I tried, I, I didn't have a group of friends that was like my core group of friends. I was hopping around a lot. The tough thing was when I was, one thing when I was cast as Oliver in the seventh grade, I played Oliver Twist. And a lot of the kids who I was friends with decided they didn't want to be friends with me anymore, you know, because I was doing theater and there was sort of a stigma attached to that. And there still is, especially with, you know, seventh and eighth graders. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, there could be homophobia, there could be bigotry. There's, there's, there's a lot of stigma attached to it. So I just, um, I felt very ostracized at the same time. I just kind of, ducked down, put my head forward and and did my did did what I felt was right for me at the time, which was to do this role and to do it the best that I could. And then to have the validation on the other side of that kind of made all that go away, all that that sort of bullying that happened. Wow, that must have been really difficult at the time because here you are the lead. Right. Yeah. And it's like I felt great about it at the same time. They weren't allowing me to feel what I wanted to feel. With right. That. They're eating their words now, Adam. <laughs> They're eating <laughs> yeah. their words now because you're, you're doing very, very well. Okay. So let's jump ahead yeah. a little bit. And you've been the leading man in like major productions. You were Aladdin, you know, on Broadway. That ran, I think, is that, I think that's still on Broadway at this point, right? Oh, yeah. Still running, still touring. There's multiple uh, companies all around the world still. Yeah. And then um, you were in Lion King, Les Mis. I mean, your credits go on and on. So talk a little bit about what 
your experience has been both positive and maybe some more difficult challenges being mixed race in the entertainment business? Because, you know, ethnicity aside, the entertainment industry is a little bit finicky. That's a good word for it, right? Sure, you can use that word. (laughs) It's a little finicky. It's certainly a very, very difficult industry to crack, regardless of what ethnicity you are or just, you know, it's just a difficult business. Yeah, yeah. One one day you're in, one day you're out. Or even hourly. (laughs) (laughs) Having said that, you know, what were some of the positives and also the challenges that you faced being mixed race? Right. Well, I think as I got older... As I started to audition, I, I should say, when I first started to audition in New York, I was very discouraged because I didn't, but all the things that, I, the breakdowns, you know, you know what the breakdowns are? Yeah, but if you could please help me set up what that is. For people who don't know, when they have auditions, they say, we're looking for a Latino 20s to 30s who can sing, dance, and act, speak Spanish. And I would, you know, my agents or... I didn't see a lot of Asian roles out there, and there's really only, out of the 50,000 roles that are in the union right now, only 2% are going to Asians right now. Holy crap, so is that true? So there's not a lot out there. Is that sure, real? 50,000 people in, in the Actors' Equity Union, and it's only around 2% of the roles go to Asian Americans. That's so, madness. You know, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But right now, you know, I'm auditioning for these roles. I'm not really seeing myself in these roles. I'm auditioning for roles that aren't really me. And I'm not getting them because I'm not fully Latino, I'm not fully Asian, and I'm getting discouraged. But I keep going. A lot of it, the name of the game is just persistence. You just keep going, you you keep trucking. And eventually, things started to turn more non-traditional, right? A lot of the the roles were being cast that were normally going towards white ethnicity now became open to all ethnicities. And, And... especially mixed ethnicities. And I found that was sort of my niche. Um, I was starting to play, um, you know, I, I played Sim in The Lion King uh, at a time when there were, I was the first sort of Asian American to play the role, the non first non-black person to play That's Simba huge. on Broadway, which was huge, right? And it was also a difficult thing because, you know, a lot of people were not receptive to that when I first was cast and on social media, it was, it was, there were a lot of negative things being said, but I I eventually found that what was my perceived weakness of being mixed ended up being my strength, right? I was able to play a a, such a variety of roles in my career that uh, it's, it's, it's what's ended up being the best thing for me because I can play Latino. I can now play any, any type type of role without feeling like I'm, you know, that's not to say that there aren't actors out there that are, the roles are written for them and it's, and it's race specific and that those are different types of stories, but the stories that I can tell that are, you know, open, I'm able to sort of slide in there. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, 
during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. What was that moment like when that uh, tide sort of shifted? Uh, I sort of rode the wave of the non-traditional casting uh, where it was sort of peaking. And people were being recognized all across the board, not just black and white, but brown and, you know, everybody was being more, it was becoming more inclusive, which is, and those people were being represented more in the, in, on theater, on the stage. And that was, it was big, you know, there's still a long way to go. As I mentioned before, how there's only such a small percentage of, of Asian Americans actually working, um, playing the roles, but there, there was headway. And I was able to ride that wave at, at the right time. So it worked out for me then. Adam, this actually brings up a conversation that I had with a friend who is a very talented actress. She is mixed race. She's half Asian, but she looks totally Asian. And she told me something that I would have never even thought of until she brought it up and, and sort of educated me. And it brings it up now because I'm talking with you, someone who is mixed race, that you're kind of in this crazy, weird place. Yeah. And in her case... She wasn't, quote unquote, Asian enough to play or even be considered for this Asian role. And you're not whatever enough to be the other. And she looks totally Asian. So it's like this crazy place where you're like, what the hell? So you laid out the positives about it. But what, there's still that weird, like, flip side to being mixed race, right? Of course. Yeah. Oh, well, just like what happened to your friend, I was auditioning for roles and the feedback that I would get from the casting directors to my agents, which then was relayed to me, was he, he's not Asian enough for this particular role. He's not Latino enough for this particular role. And, you know, and it's frustrating, right? Because it doesn't, why does it have to be that way? You know, you ask yourself that question. It's like, well, is that what audiences have to see? Or is, it, is that what they're expecting to see? Or is that just what the writers are envisioning a lot of the times it ends up being the actor's responsibility to have to change their minds to then hire you for a role that's not they're like oh well we weren't really thinking it was going to be you know mixed but he's his talent is good enough or her talent is great enough that it doesn't matter 
right? And that's the goal. That's what you want to try to strive for. But beyond that, you want to strive for creating roles that are open, you know, that, yes, you know, why, why do they want this person to be, you have to think, why do they want this person to be Latino? Is there some sort of stereotype as an urban drug dealer? You know, does it have to be a brown person? There, there's all these this sort of institutionalized racism that's already inside a lot of these scripts. And I find that I'm sort of a pioneer in that, in that I get to trailblaze and break down some of these stereotypes and show them the other option. So I'm, I'm the other option. That's the whole thing, right? We always have to do our best for the generations that are coming up behind us. Because we stand on our, you know, uh, the people that came before us, we stand on their shoulders. I think yeah. that we have a great responsibility to continue doing the same, not just for race sake, but for humanity's sake. Of course, people categorize, right? That your brain works that way in order to sift information in the world. And we create stereotypes. It just happens, right? But we have to continually recognize that we are doing that, be aware of that, first of all, and then work against it as much as we can. Generally speaking, society likes to be able to categorize, label things, people, and yeah. have everything be in like neat little boxes that they can kind of clearly identify. So of what course. happens when you don't have those labels? And what is the damage of stereotypes, the constant images of archetypes? Well, what ends up happening is you have a group, a whole group of people who are feeling like they are not being accurately depicted in the media. They feel like they're showing some sort of, that, that your life has become a joke. It's frustrating, especially for Asian Americans and the Orientalism that happens in a lot of, a lot of these productions. It's archaic and, and such a one-sided thing that to see that and audiences are only seeing that, then yeah, of course, that's what they're going to think. Okay, this right. is what an Asian person is. And unfortunately, that's, that goes down right. again to the writing. And you don't want just representation, you want quality representation, you want a role that's written, that's, that's deep, that uh, reflects a real human being, basically, which we all are, right. as <laughs> wants and needs. And and it just happens to be Asian-American, just like how Crazy Rich Asians came out. That was a huge step yeah. forward. You know, it's a Cinderella story with, that just happened to be Asian-American people. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> that was nice. And that's what we need more of. So, Adam, from the time you were a kid till, you know, college, let's say, did you have any heroes or people you could have looked to on stage or screen that were of mixed race and they were your examples of being able to do what you do. Because I think probably it was harder for you than it was for me. You know, I'm 100% Chinese and I still could barely find anyone that I could actually relate to and see myself in. Um, there were so few at the time. I can name them actually. This was before Lucy Liu for all the millennials that are listening. Um, but at the time there was Margaret Cho, obviously the legendary Michelle Yeoh and, um, Connie Chung and maybe Kylie Tung, um, but that was it. And I'm assuming for someone of mixed race, it was probably even harder. So did you have any heroes or anyone who inspired you? Uh, you know, I, I never really had somebody of mixed race that I thought was like my hero <laughs> per se. You know, I was, I was 
drawn towards people like Yul Brenner. And uh, in The King and I, he was like my idol growing up. Right. And, you know, somebody, somebody, anybody who had a little bit darker skin, just, I was like, oh, that's great. I can totally, you know, sort of see myself right. in that person. And what, and so that, that was what I sort of latched onto, but I never had somebody who professed themselves to be or identified or praised themselves as being a mutt <laughs> and being like, because there, there just aren't that many, you know? So it's growing up, yeah. I'd say. There are a lot more now. Which brings me back to you, leading man as Aladdin, who, by the way, in the story is Middle Eastern, right? Well, that's right. Well, he's in a fiction, fictional location, but is most likely of Arabian. Arabian descent. <laughs> so not from Jersey. Correct. You originated the role of Aladdin on Broadway, so you are shouldering the responsibility of this enormous production and yeah. taking on this iconic character. Um, and we just talked about the unique challenges of being mixed race. Can you talk about sure. what that role meant to you? It was incredible. I was playing Simba and the Lion King when they took me out of that to first do the first readings of Aladdin in New York City. And, you know, that was sort of the auditions. Like, if you do well there, we'll hopefully cast you. And in between those readings and the call, I was playing Zorro in, in Atlanta. I was playing a Latino character. Wait, <laughs> hold up for a second. So I was a, I was a lion. First I was a lion. Then I was Latino. And then I became Aladdin. Wow. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Got it. <laughs> That's a crazy timeline. But yeah. Okay. So when you got the call, what was that like and what did it mean to you? It was huge. I loved Aladdin growing up so much. It was my favorite Disney film. And you know, like I said, he was this little brown kid that I could empathize with. And he was cool. He was running away from guards and, and doing fun stuff, right? And, and getting the girl at the end. So I was like, yeah, I want to be Aladdin. Okay. You wanted to play Aladdin because you were jumping around, running away from guards and getting the girl. I mean, who doesn't want that as a boy? Of course. And a magic carpet ride. And a magic carpet ride. <laughs> and when the producers called me and said that we want you to play Aladdin on Broadway, I I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was so happy. My, my wife was there with me, and we were just basically jumping up and down. And, you know, I was playing another role at the time, and and um, I had just gotten injured, incidentally, from uh, something in the show, and I was all down. I was down in the dumps, and then they gave me this call, and I was over the moon. So it was such a full circle, crazy, crazy time. So what was the response that you received playing this part? Uh, because let's stop and, and sort of break this all down for just a second. This is a Broadway show. It's Disney. So the scale of the production is going to be epic. <laughs> and you're telling this very famous story that I think everyone on the planet knows. And on top of that, many of your audience members will be children. So they'll be exposed to seeing someone of mixed race, possibly for the first time, in this lead role in a spectacular production, being the hero. So that's a lot yeah. to take in. And this is Disney. And they are serious. Oh, they're, they're trusting you with a huge property yes. you know, because that's what it is. It's, it's, it's like you are carrying the mantle yes. of this giant show, which has been created and everybody loves. So there's a ton of pressure that, you know, there's a ton of pressure going in and we had to do pretty much, we had to audition the show for 
all the different sides of Disney, Disney records, Disney music, yeah. all the way up to Bob Iger himself. Yeah. He yeah. has to check off on it. Yeah, just for anybody that's not in the business, Disney does not play. No. <laughs> they don't play. They they want to, they check their boxes. Adam, I really want to sharpen my question. So going beyond an actor landing this incredible project, again, it's a show that's going to be seen by millions of people from all parts of the USA, sometimes the world. And you may be their first person of mixed race they've ever seen who is leading the show. So what did that mean to you? And what were some of the responses that you heard? And because I live in New York... I know that after every Broadway show, there is literally a mob of people waiting at the backstage door to meet the casts. So can you share some of the stories and conversations that you had there? Well, I'll talk about that first. Yeah, I, I always made it a point to, to greet the fans at the stage door if I had the time. And, and I would meet, you know, not only the Super Disney fans, but like you said, people from all over. Now, all over the world and people from, you know, the rural Midwest and saying, oh, that was my song for the wedding, Holy World, you know, <laughs> I got that so many times. That's awesome. And you're like, we, we had to get tickets to come see this because, you know, that song was in our wedding Aww. or, you know, we danced to that song. It's our song. And, you know, or I grew up, I grew up, I, I met a lot of brown skinned kids who were like, thank you. A lot of actors. But mostly like kids and and people who didn't feel like they were being heard, their voices were not being heard in, in some way. And and they felt validation from from that, from Proud of Your Boy, that beautiful song that that Aladdin sings. I had mothers come up to me saying because, you know, Aladdin is singing to his mother who passed away. And I would hear mom say, you know, that song was my son's favorite song before he passed away. Wow. You, know, you never know. The point is, you never know what's going on in the audience, in somebody's mind, or what they're going through, and what you're able to give them. 99% of the time, you don't know the gift that you're giving. And it's such a, a great thing when you can get a little of that back, and, and, they, and they tell you the feedback that it's hopefully positive, and it's usually positive, and, and that uh, you affected them in that way. Those are incredible stories. So for all the, the kids that you've met yeah. that may want to be actors, that might still be living in, you know, whatever town, that are of mixed race, that were essentially you as a little little boy, and they see yeah. you headlining this enormous, you know, production on Broadway, but to know that you are opening those doors for essentially you as a kid, how does that land? Like, how do you, what does that mean? I mean, the irony isn't lost on me. I'm the guy who didn't know where he belonged and then kind of making it big and showing other kids that it's possible, right? And that, you know, even though you might not identify with any one particular group, you can use aspects of everything that you know and love to create a person inside of you that you can be that you can live with and love and and take pride in right i mean that's that that's the point because you don't want to to go through life wishing you were a part of something that you're not you have to to find the confidence within yourself so um if i'm able to give that gift to anybody who's coming to see my shows or listen to this podcast or anything then then i feel like that's uh, i've done i've done something good <laughs> 
That's so awesome. Adam, so what's your best advice for someone who still doesn't feel represented? Um, someone who is still trying to navigate being a person of two cultures? I would say don't worry so much about trying to fit into any one group. The main thing is just, just to hone the, the skills and strengths that you have and do what makes you feel feel what, what your passion is follow those passions regardless of the validation you may or may not be getting from um, these particular groups you know you have to just kind of keep going duck your head down and keep going and it's it's really for me a lot of it was just persistence and determination and and that's what allowed me to get uh to where i am today and you're doing very well so screw the kids that made fun of you during <laughs> <laughs> that, that Oliver Twist era. That's right. Sorry, guys. Too bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> for me, the whole podcast is representation is the literal definition of race, gender, orientation, certainly. But it also is a much broader conversation to values, ideas. What's your definition of representation? How would you define representation? I guess I think at the at the core of it, it's all it kind of relates to inclusion for me. I think it's uh, in recognizing the inherent self-worth of every human being and allowing them to feel like they're being represented, being heard, and feeling like they have a voice and feeling validated. That's, that's what good representation means to me, and it's something that we have to fight for, and it's a struggle, but I think it's definitely worth fighting for. I think you're doing that, Adam. You know, you're doing it by letting your talent shine, landing these great roles, and continuing to be open and sharing your experiences and talking to all of us. So will you sign us off? Who are you and what do you represent? My name is Adam Jacobs. I am an actor and I represent the all of the above. I represent all the people who check the the box labeled other. I represent the searchers and the chameleons out there and the beautifully complicated people looking for their place in the world. Thank you to my guest, Adam Jacobs, for his time and insight. I really enjoyed our conversation. Find and follow Adam on Twitter and Instagram. His handle at both are at AdamJacobsNYC. Next week is our season one finale of Reppin. Can you believe it? And our guest is Kelly Sue DeConnick, a comic book and television writer. Some of her credits include Bitch Planet, Aquaman, and she's had a hand in rebranding Carol Danvers, also known as Captain Marvel. Trust me when I say this is a conversation you cannot miss. You can find Reppin on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So share, subscribe, and leave us a review. Hit us up on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks and love to my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, and tremendous love always to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, be sure to stand up and represent.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.